We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. People have to understand how sucky our understanding of macroeconomics is. And people who think that macroeconomics is, equals economics writ large are wrong. You know, I think that that no one statistic is, is great for reflecting inequality. A lot of people are like, the Gini coefficient, that's it. That's, that's inequality. But I think instead you should look at 90-10 ratios. You should look at the chair of the 1%. You should look at uh, wealth and income. You should look at racial inequality, urban-rural inequality. You should look at educational inequality, people with college degrees versus people without. You should look at all these things and uh, you should get a multidimensional picture of inequality. One thing to realize is that there's basically three tiers of American uh, people, of Americans in terms of wealth. People whose main wealth is cash, people whose main wealth is houses, and people whose main wealth is stocks, including the stock of their own business. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Why do tech people think the economy is doing uh, worse than it is? And what, where are the Jason Calacanis of the world uh, you know, misguided? Well, uh, so the background here is Jason Calacanis said that uh, Gen Zers are experiencing their first recession, and he called it a rolling recession where one sector goes into recession and then another does, and blah, blah, blah. Um, he's wrong. Um, we're not in any sort of recession at all. Uh, growth is so high that we're growing faster than China right now, um, even though China's faking its numbers and we're not. Uh, so we're we're growing really fast. And then in terms of, you know, incomes are growing again. You know, they, they incomes went down from inflation in 2022, but now they're growing again. And when you adjust for age, they're back to trend. And then um, uh, wealth is up. And we just got this new big data set showing that Americans have actually done pretty well wealth-wise since, uh, since the pandemic, partly because the value of their houses went up, um, which people complain about when they don't own a house already, but partly because just retirement accounts went up. And so, uh, and also, also partly because people saved a ton of money in the pandemic. And I always said that all that cash that we handed people out in the pandemic, including cash to businesses, but especially cash to people, was not for the purpose of economic stimulus, the sort of pump priming thing that Paul Krugman would always recommend after the, you know, 2008 crash, for example. It wasn't really stimulus. It was financial security. It was the idea that we were essentially having the government bail out individuals of their individual debts. And that when you look at the statistics, that's exactly what happened. People's debt went way down um, and their cash went way up. So people have saved a lot of money. And, um, and I think that was kind of the point. And in some way, COVID allowed us to heal that wound from the Great Recession. Americans felt sort of poor for a decade because the value of their houses had gone down. And so then we handed them a bunch of cash. And so that's, and of course, you know, that's, that's government debt, you know, that added to our, our government debt and that can create problems, uh, you know, down the line or even right now, which is something else we should talk about. But that's essentially what happened in terms of the average person's experience of the economy. It's going to be pretty good. Everybody has a job, uh, you know, wages are going up, incomes are going up, wealth is going up. And 
surveys of like consumer confidence, the famous University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, but others as well, all show extreme pessimism about the economy. And it's highly concentrated in Republicans. Um, you know, and it's highly concentrated among people who say that the, their personal finances are doing great and the economy of the nation is doing bad. Well, it, it's funny because, okay, so it's, it's, uh, I'll make a joke here. It's all, it's all good. It's all good that the, that the economy is doing well. People are, have jobs, but when are venture capitalists going to get super rich again, like in 2020 or 2021? Sure. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. So, so I was going to say that the other group of people besides just, you know, Republicans who are still upset about the, the Floyd protests and riots in 2020. Um, that's one group of people who are still upset. But I think that, that tech people are upset because at, tech has been out of sync with the rest of the economy. So in starting in, I think, November 2021 and continuing into much of 2022, tech stocks crashed. Uh, and partly this was just because they were inflated in the, uh, in the great monetary easing of the, uh, you know, of the pandemic. And then they hadn't, you know, then they crashed. And then, but partly it was because they had, this had been building up for a while. And... E Tech stuff was really overvalued because there was this um, this idea of winner take all markets in in the internet space. This idea that if you were on the internet, there would only be one company that did everything. There was only one company for search, and it's Google. There was only one company for social, and it's Facebook. Except that's not true. It turned out not to be true. Um, a lot of those markets turned out not to be winner take all. But I think more importantly, what was happening is that a lot of venture capitalists and a lot a lot of buyers, really, not even venture capitalists, it was, it was really the buyers, like you know, be it private buyers like SoftBank and Tiger, or be it, you know, the public market sometimes, were valuing a lot of these companies as if they were going to win their space, but they were valuing multiple companies in the same space as if both of them were going to, were like certain to win the space. So you saw like Uber and Lyft, both have valuations that imply that they dominate the entire, you know, ride hailing market. And you saw things like that, right? You, you'd see competitors each priced as if the other competitor doesn't even exist. And I think that that was sort of the fallacy of winner take all markets because you just assume like, oh, I'm going to win. And yeah, maybe that works on like a pitch deck, but it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really work for valuation. So then the, the valuations all cratered. Um, or, uh, the, the valuations of big companies went down just because they, they were too high. And then yeah, but I think also the, rates went up and-, and, and um, Rates went up, yeah. yeah. And so when, when are rates going to go down again? Hmm. Inflation's inflation's gone down, but not all the way back down. So I think uh, rates aren't going to go down uh, real soon. But I think that um, I think that if inflation, you know, stay, you know, goes like it went ticked up last month. If it goes, you know, back down, it, it looked like it was completely beat. It probably is mostly beat, you know. But but if it um, if inflation stays pretty low, I think we could see rate cuts next year. Um, but I don't think sooner than next year is going to happen. Um, you know, some like mid next year. That would be my earliest. Uh, for, for when rate cuts could happen after that, you know, if inflation bounces back a little bit, then we could see inflate rate cuts and, you know, uh, in a decade, I don't know. Um, it's not going to last that long, but, but it, it's going to last longer than people think rate cuts helped rate cuts helped pop sort of the little mini tech bubble that we had. But, and that was in, you know, that was when people, it wasn't actually rate cuts. It was expectations of, uh, sorry, rate hikes. I'm saying rate cuts, rate hikes, uh, rate hikes. Um, it was in late 2021 that people started expecting rate hikes. So the actual rate hikes didn't begin till early 22. But then in 21, uh, late 21, people were like, okay, the Fed is not going to tolerate this amount of inflation for this long. They're going to hike. And so then you start to see some of the tech valuations go down. Um, but then, so the, the big companies went down, you know, 40%. And then these, these sort of medium big companies that all like got overpriced, like, um, you know, Shopify, uh, although I like Shopify, you know, but, but. 
I think they got overpriced during the pandemic because everyone was shopping online. And then, um, you know, th those companies went down more like 70, 80%. Like they really got clobbered. And then it takes a long time for that to filter through to startups. So what happened is that when, when public, I mean, you should be lecturing me on this. You were in this. <laughs> I, yeah, but I'm in the know, micro. You're in the, you're in the macro. But you're, you're doing fair a good enough. Job. Okay, but like, okay. So so let me let me ask you. So so my understanding of it from talking to all my venture capitalist friends is that when when big tech stocks in the public markets are doing badly, uh, um, people you know venture capitalists automatically uh, tighten up their standards for investing in uh, startups all the way down to you know maybe the Series B or even Series A. Although seed stage funding is not really affected. That's my understanding of the behavior. Is that pretty much true? Yes. Some people have called this uh, sort of a factory model of venture capital. This idea that every you know, there's a seed stage, a Series A, Series B, and on, you know so forth until they're public, and you sort of look at where public companies end up, and you say, hey, when Stripe goes public, it's going to be you know a hundred billion dollar company, and so. Um, and this is how they're doing. And so you look at sort of the multiples based on, on the revenue and you say, okay, this is, that's the standard for what, what we can expect in the industry. And so when going all the way down, okay, this is what we expect for seed round. This is what we need to raise for series A and et cetera. And when Stripe is now not worth hundred billion, but 50 billion or 30 billion, uh, you know, or whatever it would go if it was out in market and it's already been, been cut even in private markets, then that ricochets down every stage and everything is cut. And so we were seeing companies get done at like 100x, uh, you know, ARR um, because these public comps were, 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 were so big. But yeah, seeing as the public gone down, that what would you say? In what space? Like fintech or something? <laughs> um, in, 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 in SaaS, in, in, in multiple spaces. And we're still seeing an AI right now. So, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, the AI <laughs> there's an AI bubble, um, but, um, you know, fintech is shot. SaaS is shot like, um, and it's, it's, it's back to, back to normal. So yeah, public, you know, and that's why everyone's looking at what Stripe's going to do, um, and how they're going to perform. Um, and, and the IPO market has, has been shot except for, you know, Instacart and I think one other one, um, Clavio maybe that, that, that hasn't done super well. So, so yeah, there, in 2020, 2021, there was a thriving growth market, you know, led by Tiger Global and, and, and others mm -hmm. were tons of deals uh, getting done. And and now that's that's shot. That and it was so much so that you know some pe people say, hey, when you raise a seed in Series A, think about getting profitable afterwards because it's it's just so hard to raise right now unless you're an AI company. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, rates killed crypto. You know, that's why SBF uh, you know had to do that. Rates killed crypto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so wait, were, were were rates somehow involved in the FTX blow up? Because I didn't actually understand. Other than the value of crypto is going down in general. Yeah, no, it, it, no, it's just the value of crypto going. I mean, he was so over levered in, in so many um, ways. And um, we thought that sort of there was something. It, it turns out that crypto was just extremely correlated to, to the markets. People thought that it was anti-correlated somehow. But, um, you know, there wasn't much to Solana, not to pick on Solana or, or any of these coins um, or, or sort of projects. Not, you know, there's a lot of Bitcoin and stuff like that, but a lot of these projects were really just, you know, sort of uh, emerging from excess liquidity and people wanting to gamble mm -hmm. and, um, and 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 make some money. But once a lot of the excess liquidity went away, mm -hmm. um, or once good times, you know, stopped rolling in as easily, a lot of these projects, a lot of NFTs, for example, um, that we thought were like, oh, such cool art, um, but actually were just kind of speculation, um, you know, pr projects in terms of what really motivated people. Um, right. They, uh, they, they they were shot. 
Right. So, so my understanding is that this did not really trickle down to seed stage funding and that seed stage funding was still okay. Yes. Seed stage funding is, um, is, is, is still okay. It depends what you mean by, okay. It's okay for founders. VCs want it to go down because they, they want a better market, right? They want better terms. Um, but yeah, it, it's, mm. it's seed stage funding is still okay for founders. Uh, I mean, you know, might've taken terms a- of the amount of money getting handed out. Yeah, yeah. The amount of money getting pushed out the door is not like that much lower. Now. Because the feedback loops are really long. When, when you raise a, a venture right. fund, you know, you deploy that capital over three years. And so even if, you know, things went down in 2021 uh, or, or, you know, 2022, it, it's still going to take some, t- there's still liquid funds still have capital. They have to deploy that capital. Um, yeah. And so uh, there is going to be a lot of capital removed from the VC ecosystem. Wait, 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 do they have to deploy the capital? Can't they just not call it? Yeah, they can call it slower or or not call it. And some, you know, Founders Fund uh, decided to half their fund in, ha- in half, but not every firm has has um, as high integrity because when you when you call capital, you get paid on that capital. You get two, you know, two, you get management fees, and and a lot of these people get rich off management fees. So, um, you know, you're you're hurting your own economics if you don't call it. Um, right. Yeah. So, like, basically, my understanding is that. Uh, a lot of of startups borrowed a lot of or took a lot of venture funding, took a lot of cash before, and maybe even borrowed venture debt before um, the the aforementioned crash in twenty late twenty twenty one, early twenty twenty two. They they had a lot of cash, um, and now there's a lot of companies whose business models never made sense and don't make sense. Um, even in a good market, they were just never they never made sense. It's um, you know the technology is not there or they got out competed or, you know, like it was just always some made up BS. Like they were always compost and now they're dying like right now. And so now you're starting to see those bad returns show up in uh, VCs um, actual P and L's. You're starting to see VCs actually take the hit for a hit that was actually taken, um, you know, almost two years ago now. Yeah. And what Chamath and um, David Sachs said in All In this past weekend is um, they are surprised by this, you know, 4.9 GDP. But what they think is, um, hey, consumption has to be down in the sense that Stripe is is down, PayPal is down, sort of other, you know, evidences of, of consumption is down. And maybe uh, the economy just hasn't picked that up yet or picked up sort of the drop in demand. Um, and it'll it'll register that at some point. Do you, does that sound coherent to you? Yes. Uh, yeah. And so, so what's been, you know, I'm going to write a whole other post on this and the idea of sector specific shocks and whether a, 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 you know, shock in a specific sector will screw the whole economy after the financial crisis in 2008 and after finance collapsed and then the rest of the economy collapsed, um, there was this massive surge of interest in macroeconomics in the, in research about sectoral shocks, about the idea that you could have just a bust in one sector that would then filter through to the rest of the economy. And it seemed like we'd had that in the dot-com crash, uh, you know, as well, just to a lesser degree. And so there was the, um, what's interesting is that we've seen tech crash now, uh, maybe not as big a crash as the dot-com crash, but a big one anyway. And it has not filtered through at all. We saw Silicon Valley Bank and a couple other tech and crypto specific banks fail. Uh, um, PacWest and, uh, or wait, did PacWest fail? I forget. First Republic failed. But then, um, uh, I don't remember. Anyway, but so we saw uh, like like three, four bank failures. And we saw um, uh, uh, basically nothing happened. 
like the whole tech sector, um, you know, sort of had this, this, it, it worked out all this, this, you know, excess capacity, we'll say. And then not, the rest of the economy just didn't care at all. It was like, you know, San Francisco didn't even exist. And I think a lot of VCs who, you know, everyone sort of thinks of the economy based on their own city and their own industry, right? If you're in Detroit, the car industry's dying, you think everything sucks, even if, you know, it's like the 90s and everything else is doing well, right? And um, uh, another sector-specific shock, by the way, that failed to derail the rest of the economy at all. Um, and so, so I think that we're now starting to, to temper some of our enthusiasm for sector-specific shock models after seeing... Uh, you know, tech kind of crash and then a bunch of layoffs. I mean, like, you know, there were, there were, there was a lot of overhiring in the pandemic. And then I think the layoffs numerically just corrected that, but it certainly has taken tech employment off of its growth trend. The idea that like, Oh, whatever else happens, you can always just go get a nice, you know, 500 K job at Google and then have a nice house in like Palo Alto that's, that's gone. Like you can, you know, maybe you can get a job at Google, but now you're lucky to land that job at Google. And it's not even clear what Google does any, anymore. Hey everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Zooming out a bit, we touched on this in the previous episode, but basically, you know, Lynn Alton has the thesis that, hey, inflation's going to have to stay high, relatively high, you know, 3%, she predicts average this, this decade because we our debt to GDP ratio is, is, is so high. There's, there's so much debt in the system that we have to inflate it away. But, and I, I think that you're somewhat sympathetic to that. But what you're saying is the economy can still be great or for the you know, sort of average consumer or average person, um, for the middle class, certainly with, with hot, you know, reasonably high inflation and, you know, reasonably high rates. Is, is, is that accurate? Like we still, everyone have jobs, right? The economy is still, you know, largely running hot. And I think that interest rates will stay high because that's trying to cool that off. That's the macroeconomic idea. Um, everybody always complains about this, this temperature metaphor. Everyone always complains about this idea that inflation represents a form of heat and that, you know, like interest rates represent high interest rates represent a form of cooling, but yet that's still how everybody thinks of it on some level. And because no one actually understands how macroeconomic works, macroeconomics work, you know, we've never, we don't have the data to even test models that really work. And so to some degree, we don't bother. People have to understand how sucky our understanding of macroeconomics is and how, and, and people who think that macroeconomics is, equals economics writ large are wrong. I would say that, you know, a quarter of economists work on something macro-y. Um, most economists are microeconomists of some sort and microeconomics tends to work much better. There's, there's parts of microeconomics that also don't work, uh, well, or where we haven't made many advances and we just don't understand much, but macro, but there's parts where we really have made a ton of progress. Actually, we should, I should just write a, a, a post about like which fields are, are doing well. That's going to make so many people mad. Um, but macroeconomics sucks and it's not the fault of macroeconomists mostly it's you know it's mostly the fact that it's just very hard to um to understand these macro phenomena because you can't put them in a lab at all and and everything's connected to everything else and there's not even that much data and so um because of this the fed keeps adding models to their understanding and so they don't ever throw anything away so you'll see at the Fed, you'll still see a giant spreadsheet of every industry connected to every other industry. And like, what if we do this? What happens to this industry? What happens to that industry? It's like the most overfit thing you've ever seen on a giant spreadsheet. You pro 
that could almost certainly just be replaced by ML, but um, that is still used. And that was something that was made during the, the 50s and 60s. And um, that is still used. But yet then you see these sort of 80s style models where we just assume, assume the economy is just one guy deciding how much fruit to eat today versus tomorrow based on the interest rate. And then like th that model still exists and, and Fed people still look at that. And so as you add models to the, the sort of understanding, they just keep adding more. But I think ultimately they still think of this, of the economy as like this, this heat metaphor, you know, like, oh, there's too much economic activity. It's bubbling up. We got to cool it down. Zooming out, I sort of want to reflect on where we could go from here because you had a few pieces. So did we, did we cover the great news about American wealth? The uh, regular Americans are getting richer? No, we haven't talked about that yet. L let's get into that. We mentioned it. There's this giant survey called the Survey of Consumer Finances. They interview like thousands and thousands of people um, and they do incredibly detailed interviews and they make sure that people understand the questions. And it's really just super detailed because it's so hard to do. It only comes out once every uh, three years. So we only get this snapshot of wealth every three of this detailed snapshot every three years. We get a few things from the Census Bureau every year, but then we only really get this detailed snapshot every three years. And we just got it. So that's kind of cool. And then uh, since, you know, the, the pandemic started, the, the, the pandemic um, began about three years ago, uh, we get to see um, how well, like wealth has evolved since 2019. And 2019 was the sort of economic high point. Everybody had a job, basically, like the economy is doing fine. We're doing great. Um, thanks, Trump. But um, it remains to be seen whether Trump was part of that. But uh, but certainly things are doing all right. And inflation was very low. Then you had the pandemic and all these disruptions and then, you know, uh, unemployment, which then bounced back and then inflation and then uh, all this weirdness. And um, and so how did Americans ride that out? It turns out that that Americans are doing really, really well wealth wise compared to how they were um, median wealth. Now, remember that median is not an average, right? Median is just the person in the middle of the distribution. Like if you lined everyone up from poorest to richest and then took like that middle person, that's the median person. And it doesn't matter how rich Elon Musk gets over at the, you know, the edge of the distribution, th that does not affect the median person's wealth. So this whole notion of like, oh, you know, Elon Musk walks into a bar and suddenly the average wealth goes up by like 10x, right? That doesn't happen with median, right? With median, it pretty much barely moves at all. Um, and so median is a good measure not of at an average, but of sort of a typical, typical person, right? Because you're in the middle of that distribution. And so the median wealth, and this is all adjusted for inflation, went up by 37% or so about over those, those years. And if your wealth went up by 37% over three years, I think like you wouldn't necessarily feel like you've gotten rich, but you would feel like you were doing okay, right? I mean, like 37% gain over three years is not bad. How accurate do you think are sort of measurement of inequality statistics are in terms of reflecting true inequality? Well, you know, I think that that no one statistic is, is great for reflecting inequality. I mean, a lot of people like the Gini coefficient, that's it. That's that's inequality. But I think instead you should look at 90-10 ratios. You should look at, you know, um, the wealth of the, the share of the 1%. You should look at uh, wealth and income and disposable income and things like that. Um, you should look at stuff indexed for local cost of living. You should look at racial inequality, urban rural inequality. You should look at educational inequality, people with college degrees versus people without. 
You should look at all these things and uh, you should get a multidimensional picture of inequality. So the answer is just look, you know, it's not like, oh, my one data thing failed. Well, then I'll just, I'll just use vibes and, and read Twitter and see if people are upset about inequality this week on Twitter. Preview, they are. But that doesn't mean that inequality is more of a problem than it was. Um, so it just means people on Twitter have an incentive to be upset or at least pretend to be upset all the time for clicks. And so the, the, the truth is that if you look at wealth inequality, and I'm not, I, I'm not going to argue to you that wealth inequality is the thing that matters. But if you look at wealth inequality, you see that it's just gone down across the board since 2019. You see that total inequality has gone down you, because the wealth of the people at the bottom gained proportionally more than the wealth of the people at the top. Although everybody gained, right? Everybody gained across the board. Everybody's richer, except for maybe Jason Calacanis, but everybody's richer um, uh, across the board. And uh, in terms of these groups, you know, these bins of demographic groups, everybody's richer. And so, uh, but then the, but the people at the bottom gained a bit, you know, proportionally more than the people at the top. And you also saw racial inequality go down. You saw uh, white people gained 20 something percent, black and Hispanic people gained like 30 something. And so that was a big, um, yeah, that, that's a compression, right? Um, it's not, that doesn't like remove the gap, but it narrows the gap a bit, right? So that happened. That, and then uh, educational inequality decreased. We were always talking about the working class, right? People who didn't go to college, who just go get a job. And those people's wealth gained more than the wealth of uh, people with college degrees. time. And so urban rural, right? We're talking about the, you know, the, the, the people who voted for Obama, but then voted for Trump, but then maybe voted for Biden, the, these sort of like forgotten people of the of of small town America, right? Um, those people's wealth gained more than the wealth of the fancy people in the cities. And so that's so these are this is all good news. I mean, like if you're, you know, if if you're a guy who whose entire self-worth is based on the fact that like you have $50 million and all these rubes have nothing and like you drive past them in your moderately expensive car thinking like, oh, $50 million, you know, then, then maybe you're upset that inequality went down, even though you actually got richer, you gained money. Maybe you're upset because of your ability to lord it over random people you see on the street was slightly decreased. Well, I'm sorry, you know, boo hoo, Chinese violin. I, I mean, like, um, the point is that a rising tide lifted all boats and lifted the boats of the people at the bottom more. And that's good. Like, that's just good. And in terms of who we have to thank for that, um, you know, people are like Biden. Yeah, yeah, Biden. But like, you know, Trump was a big part of it. And what Trump did and what Congress did while Trump was in office during COVID was a big part of that. Um, Trump and uh, the Republican Congress handed out a lot more money than Biden did. Uh, well, because they were in power for most of the pandemic. And they handed out more money and that money ended up being just extremely important in rebuilding America's wealth. And so, but of course, Biden was, was, you know, helpful too. So yeah, that's what happened. Hey everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Remember that Paul Graham a few years ago had a blog post basically saying, Hey, every time a company becomes successful, the founders get really rich and richer than everybody else and inequality increases. So, so in some capacity, we should support growing inequality in that case, or at least uh, realize that if we are um, advocating for less inequality, we are also re perhaps restricting um, startup growth. Uh, was he directionally, did he have a point there or how, did you, how should we think about that? Well, I, I can't address his actual point because I haven't read the post.
And if, if that characterization is an oversimplification of what he said, then I could address that. And, you know, he'll be like, well, that's not what I actually said. And, and, you know, that happens to me all the time. People are always addressing like a caricature of my post instead of the actual post. Uh, and that's just as a writer, something you have to deal with. So, so let's not address Paul Graham's actual post without reading it, but let's, let's address the idea that inequality is good in some way. Um, this, there is a very consistent error that people make when they analyze the economy, which is thinking that uh, mistaking the outcome for the cause. Things that cause inequality to go up can be good, even if inequality going up is itself not good. When I like eat some some food and get less hungry, then I like get a little bit fatter. So, you know, but I'm also a little bit healthier because I'm not starving anymore. So instead, let's uh, just make everyone as fat as possible. Well, that, you know, that doesn't necessarily work. It's that, and I, and I don't ascribe this view to Paul Graham because he didn't read his thing. But the idea that increasing in, doing things that increase inequality will make people get rich because when people get rich, it tends to increase inequality. That is cargo cult. That's exactly what we call a cargo cult. And so cargo cult was this thing where in World War II, you know, uh, when we were doing this naval war versus Japan, we, we had all these little airstrips at these islands. And then some, you know, uh, local people who had never really seen airplanes before, um, you know, saw people like flight tra air traffic controllers waving these sticks around with these little helmets on. And then an airplane would land and bring all this stuff and they'd get some of the stuff. And they were like, wow, that's great. And so then and then afterwards we were like, OK, bye. Thanks, guys. And, you know, just 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 left. And then. Um, they were like, okay, well, we need some more of that. So they made makeshift, uh, you know, uh, this is on just a couple islands. This wasn't widespread, but it happened in a couple places. And then people made like these makeshift, like air traffic control hats and like wave two sticks on. They're like, let's do this. Maybe the planes will come again. And like, no, it won't. And like, I don't blame you for trying. <laughs> so this one, one group of people even made a, a wooden mock-up of like a, a plane, you know, hoping that this would attract the other planes. <laughs> And then like, this is, this is basically how macroeconomics works, by the way. But then um, it's, it's, uh, you know, correlation isn't causation. So making, doing things that increase inequality will not necessarily make anyone get rich, even if people getting rich tends to increase inequality. There, it's easy to imagine policies that increase inequality that, um, that do not make anyone rich. Right. So, for example, if you just tax poor people more, right, that will increase inequality, but that doesn't mean anybody gets rich. And so um, so you're sort of pushing on a string if you try to if you try to increase wealth by increasing inequality. Instead, I think we have to look at inequality when inequality goes up and down. We have to look at why that's happening. If it's happening because we have a lot of growth and a lot of great companies being started, then maybe we should think. Okay, this is a this is a a price that we have to pay. Uh, you know, to it, it's it's an inevitable price is that some people get rich first, and that's a quote from Deng Xiaoping. Actually, he was like, okay, you know what? Some people will get rich before others, but eventually we'll all get rich. And um, and of course, not everyone got rich as like you know Jack Ma or whatever. But but he was he was basically right. Um, some people have to get rich first, right? And this is true of countries too. Like some countries have to develop first, and so. Uh, that's fine. But then when you start saying, um, uh, let's just, um, let's cut taxes for the rich because then there'll be job creators. That was a theory that many people had and it turned out not to pan out. Like it didn't really work. Um, 
because the, the idea was that if you tax rich people at lower rates, rich people will work more. It turned out that that didn't work. It may be that on some general, like generalized, idealized level that actually does work because rich people work really hard. Um, but it also turns out that rich people almost all own their own businesses. And it turns out that rich people work really, <laughs> that, that rich people work hard because they like own the equity of their own business. And the taxes on that are not especially high. And so, you know, most rich people, you know, work like absolute dogs, like, except for, you know, I mean, there's, we know rich people who don't work well, like the VP at Google who hasn't, who was just like been in Hawaii and hasn't even checked in for like years and just like, oh yeah, I'm a VP at Google and makes like pulls down $5 million a year because Google is absolute shit at allocating its massive cash resources from its ongoing search monopoly. We know those people, or at least we know of them. Um, we may know them. But uh, but most rich people just work, 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 um, at least until they, they cash out and basically retire. Um, cutting their taxes it didn't really help. Um, anyway, so so doing things that, that lead to increased inequality before tax or after tax don't necessarily uh, grow the economy. Um, but things that grow the economy may or may not lead to increased inequality. So we've had, we've had rapid growth since the pandemic with decreased inequality. In fact, actually what people don't get is the inequality was going down under Trump and under Obama's second term, even as the economy grew strongly since 2012, 2013, we've had, we had now not all forms of inequality went down. So I don't want to be too flippant and say like inequality went down because there is like one or two measures of inequality that actually went up. Um, but most measures of inequality, like wage inequality and wealth inequality and these things went down, even as we were getting richer and a lot of people were, were getting rich, you yeah. know? So like wealth inequality went down at the same time as like all the people, you know, who IPO'd before the, before the pandemic right. got, you know, cashed out. And, and what are the mechanisms by which, you know, that lead to inequality going down? Is it, is it higher taxes? Is it um, more government spending? Like what are the, what are it the was, it was more rapid growth for the people at the bottom. So part of it was the recovery in housing prices. One thing to realize is that there's basically three tiers of American uh, people of Americans in terms of wealth. There are uh, people whose main wealth is cash, people whose main wealth is houses, and people whose main wealth is stocks, including the stock of their own business. Those are the three tiers. And I would, you and I are in the upper tier. Our wealth is, but, but I guess if we bought houses in San Francisco, we'd be back in the middle tier. Because it's so damn expensive here. So we're, we're sort of upper, upper, you know, upper tier only because we're choosing not to buy houses yet. But, but so all the rich people just own a bunch of stocks. And stocks, conversely, are mostly owned by rich people. Um, housing is mostly owned by the middle class. And the middle class mostly owns housing, especially owner-occupied housing. Um, your house is wealth if you own a house. And... People are like, well, you don't get an income stream from that. So it's not real wealth. Well, you do get an income stream. It's called not having to pay rent every month, right? So that's like, that's the income you get because every month you're like, oh, hey, my paycheck's much bigger because I didn't spend a dime on rent. Uh, that's after you paid off your mortgage, of course. But um, but yeah, so so you housing, owner-occupied housing gives you a huge income stream. It's called not having to pay rent. So, um, so you get that. And uh, that, that's called, by the way, in the statistics, that's called owner's equivalent rent, if you ever, if you want to be a nerd. And so, uh, and then that's the wealth for the middle class. And the wealth for the people at the bottom, they don't own houses. 
uh, home ownership rates about 66%. So you have households, like a third of households don't own their own home, they rent. And so the, for those people, wealth, they, and they don't have much stock either. Like a few of them have stock, like we, you and I have stock, right? Um, we don't own homes. So we're in actually that group, technically in the statistics. Most of the people in that group uh, just just um, have cash as their, as their main thing or, or bonds. Um, could be old people who live on bonds, but um, for those people, getting wealthier means getting out of debt, mostly. They save some cash, like they'll have some cash in their savings account, CDs or whatever. Mostly it's just getting out of debt is what makes them wealthier. And people got out, out of a lot of debt. People had a huge amount of debt that they had built up by the time of the financial crisis, by 2008. Huge amount of uh, personal consumer debt. And this is Part of the reason why the recession was so bad is because people just went into like pay off my debt mode. It's called a balance sheet recession. So that happened, but then people started getting out of debt and rebuilding their finances with some help from the government. And after the pandemic, with a lot of help from the government, uh, they started rebuilding their finances and that made them wealthier. So people actually just saved money. Um, the savings rate increased after the financial crisis. And then again, um, briefly during the pandemic. And so that's what happened. It wasn't that we, we didn't come down on the rich. We didn't clobber the rich, right? We never did that. Um, we haven't done that since the early 90s. Uh, and even then, we only did a little bit. Um, we didn't really come down on the rich. Uh, we grew the bottom faster. That increases, that decreases inequality. And that's good. And that's not preventing anyone from selling their startup, right? Like having faster growth for the people at the bottom, like a recovery in housing values and people getting out of debt, that doesn't mean you can't like IPO. Yeah. The, you know, some people will say something like, hey, in the last, you know, 30 years or 50 years or whatever, there's been tremendous growth. But for the, the average person, the, the cost of living or the quality of life hasn't grown sort of in proportion to that. I guess, I guess to the extent that there's any r remote truth in that, is, is that mostly a function of house prices, healthcare prices, and education prices um, go going to, you know, skyrocketing? And, and I ask that because then the implicate, like the reason those prices are going high, or one of those reason reasons is because they're sort of um, heavily regulated markets, not, not a ton of in innovation that would drive the costs down. And thus the, the, the blame should not be on capitalism or, or, or the markets, but perhaps on, on the sort of over-regulation or poor, poor use of regulation. Is, is that line, are you sympathetic with that line of thinking? It's, that's a giant question. But first, let me note that everything that I've been telling you is inflation adjusted. And housing and healthcare are the biggest parts of inflation. So when we're talking about cost of living, the thing that all, everything I'm saying to you is cost of living has already been taken into account. That's a national average. So it doesn't reflect the price of housing in San Francisco. And it doesn't reflect the price of health care for like that person who needs like massive amounts of care for their diabetes. It reflects an average. Obviously, individuals do not consume the average. They get, get devastated by things or, or a median, right? Not an average, but a median. The, the, you know, most people are not the median person. That doesn't make any sense. But everything is inflation adjusted that I've been telling you. So when I say that, if I say that incomes have grown, what I mean is that incomes have grown, even taking the cost of living into account. When I say that wealth has grown, I mean wealth has grown relative to the cost of living. So that's already been taken care of. Now, as to the question of whether or not cost of living is, is too high because of regulation, blah, 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 that's a huge problem in America. Um, the idea that, that, that healthcare is too expensive, housing is too expensive, in, at least in many places, um, and probably overall, uh, and then other things are too expensive in America. 
um, childcare, you know, uh, college, college tuition since the, the um, pandemic uh, has been going down in inflation adjusted terms. So uh, college is getting cheaper. And part of that, you know, the, the big reason for that is there's the drop off in demand for college. Fewer people are going to college. Um, so there's less demand. Uh, we can have a whole episode about that. Uh, in fact, that should be our next episode is, is college. Yeah. But then, you know, healthcare inflation has, healthcare cost rise, let's say, has moderated quite a lot. So it was like, doot, 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 doot. now it's like, doot, 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 doot. It's, it's still increasing, but very slowly now. Housing also, same thing. I, I think the great, the great, excess cost boom is over, but we still need to get those costs down and that's still hard. And there's a very long list of reasons why that's true. I would say that regulate overregulation is an incredible problem in uh, housing and a, a modest problem in healthcare. Uh, because I would say that in healthcare, you have a lot of regulation, but almost all those regulations are things that people would demand uh, from private companies if you didn't have the regulation enforcing it. Regulation is not much of a problem in education at all because the we we had such a massive expansion of college in the private, in the for-profit um, boom and all those for-profit schools sucked and died <laughs> and leaving people with debt and no usable degree. Sorry. Um, and they were mostly like first-time college people, like, you know, working class people, black people, Sorry, that didn't work. Caveat emptor, buyer beware. Capitalism has, you know, taken your, your life savings. But anyway, that sucked. But, but it was very easy to expand college, right? So if you want to build new houses in San Francisco, good luck. If you want to build, if you want to make a new university, you're fine. You can do that. It's not actually that hard. You just, it just, you know, it didn't really pan out. Um, on the other hand, we have the idea of subsidized demand. Yeah. So... Demand subsidies are a very big deal in education because, um, uh, you know, we have cheap student loans provided by the government, which pump up tuition prices, blah, blah, blah. So demand subsidies are huge in education. Demand subsidies are big in housing, uh, mortgage interest deduction being the biggest one, but then there's various other, you know, things we do. Uh, demand subsidies in healthcare are also a big deal because we have the deduction uh, tax deduction for employer-sponsored health contribution, like employer health contributions. That's why everyone gets healthcare through their job. Because this is an old, you know, New Dealer kind of thing, because the New Dealers wanted everyone to work, right? You're gonna, you've got to work, everything's through your job. And then, you know, it's the corporate welfare state. And so this idea that the government just simply uses taxes to to give the the corporate welfare state a boost. And um, and that that worked in terms of, of covering most Americans in terms of insurance coverage. Obamacare covered most um, most of the remaining ones that, that didn't get that. But then, um, and, and Medicare. But it is a subsidy, right? It's a demand subsidy. So we subsidize demand in most of these industries, but in terms of restricting supply, we don't always necessarily restrict supply. It is not that hard to start new stuff in healthcare, right? Yeah, there's some overhead, but like it's not ultimately that hard. And in fact, our healthcare is much more entrepreneurial than healthcare in every other rich country. It's a lot easier to start a healthcare business here than somewhere else, despite the red tape. Um, just because we have less regulation, but yet our healthcare costs so much more. So I would, but in housing, obviously, demand restriction is the big thing. But then again, if you look at national housing costs, they've gone up much less than like regional housing costs. 
So I would say that demand subsidies are more of a factor than uh, than quantity limitations everywhere but housing. Does, is that a good answer? Yeah, um, it is. And we should also do we should do a deep dive episode on, on healthcare at some, at some point too. Oh yeah, it's, it's hard to understand um, for many people. Um, well, segueing to to a last topic. Remember a few years ago, Thomas Piketty had a moment in in the sun, um, and he sort of had his his own sort of you know. Um, collection of arguments about about inequality and why, why it's worse than than uh, we understand or, or, or some ex- explanations for it. Why don't you unpack briefly P- Piketty's um, argument and why what he got right and what he got wrong? Well, so his basic argument was the rich get richer because they get a higher return on their investment. So if you're rich, you have all this built up wealth and it earns a return. And if you're poor, you don't have many assets and they don't earn much of a return. And uh, so over time, the rich will get richer just because of that, right? It was ultimately an argument about wealth inequality, not about income inequality. And this was very counter to the idea of Keynes. Keynes said, when you get, when people have so much, he's, Keynes said wealth is capital. So the the Ultimately, every stock is tied to the value of some productive asset, right? And every house is its own productive asset. And this is all capital, right? So when you get so much capital, eventually the return to capital goes down, gets competed away. So you just flood the zone with capital. And then eventually the return gets gets competed away. And um, and then the return to capital goes down. And then that naturally limits the rise of inequality. And that was Keynes saying that. And Piketty's like, no, actually it doesn't. If you just look at history, look at these trends, we see that unless there's a big war or some kind of like huge change in policy like the New Deal or whatever, what we see is um, that capital, like returns to capital don't really go away. Um, they just keep going. And that was that's the argument, right? That's the argument about whether wealth inequality naturally tends to rise. And when Piketty's book came out, Piketty, when his book came out, it really looked as if he was right if you looked at the, the trend. Right around the time his book came out, the trend broke. Right around the trend his book came out, wealth inequality started going down. It was a spectacularly poorly timed book in terms of fitting the data. It was like, it was sort of like um, Japan as number one. Remember that book? You don't, I, yeah. I'm too young for that book, so you're too young for that book. But but if you know if you read about what books came out, like there was this book, Japan as number one, that was written right at the height of the bubble. And then it was like, right after that, it's like you call a trend and the trend collapses. Yeah. Badly timed uh, predictions, right? So, and so, so that happened to, to Piketty's uh, thesis. Whether or not, you know, whether or not he identified important processes at work in the world, I think he did. I think that you can get the kind of Pikettian process for a long time. But at some point, Keynes will start to, to bite. Like, you, it can't go on forever. And at some point, Keynes will come in and bite you. And Keynes came in and bought. And so I bit, you know. And so so what happened was that everybody overinvested in stock, especially stocks, right? Especially um, and then and then stocks return stock returns reduced. So when we're talking about that, we're bringing it full circle to the beginning of the episode. When we talk about that tech bust, it was because too much capital flowed into stuff. Right, like stuff was getting funded that shouldn't have, and uh, like NFTs, and there was there was too much capital, and it that is 
what it looks like when the return to capital gets competed away because there's too much capital out there. There, and, and of course, there is an actual difference between financial capital and productive capital. But what it turned out was that all the financial capital ran out of productive things to invest in and started investing in like monkey pictures because, you know, pictures, they didn't have any actual monkey JPEG. It turned out produced ex next to nothing except for a slight, you know, Steve Aoki, the DJ, he really enjoyed having it's, it's art, Noah. Yeah, it's art. Appreciate that. art. Art is productive. It produces art value, but like not much. Right. And so ultimately, I would say that Piketty was was identified some important things that were going on, but the idea that it was an iron law that never broke was wrong, and that uh, ultimately Keynes's ideas came in and 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 won. Um, one thing you don't want to do in economics in the long term is bet against Keynes. <laughs> like somehow Keynes was always right about stuff. Um, and he, he always, you know, he wrote in a very like discursive elliptical manner. So it's sometimes hard to, and so there's like a whole cottage industry of saying, what did Keynes really say? But like, ultimately, you know, in, in macro stuff, it all comes back to like Keynes being right about things. And in the end, he was right about this one too. And wealth inequality started going down just because, you know, you in the venture world, I'm sure experienced the, the overcrowding of rounds. Yeah. That's the micro to Keynes's macro right? Overcrowding is just, imagine overcrowding at the whole societal level. Yeah. So, so that's what happened. Makes sense. Um, I want to be mindful of time. Uh, shall, shall we, uh, shall we wrap on that and then save some of the, uh, the, you know, the bureaucracy piece, the global South piece and the, um, uh, cold war piece for, for, for next time. Yeah. Yeah. We, we overdosed on geopolitics a little. Let's, yeah, yeah. let's swing back to, to hardcore economics for a little while. Totally. Um, Manoa, uh, this was great as always. And uh, until next time. Until next time. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.